Hello, welcome to the Unseen and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive insight and stories from David and our team of writers. Coming up today, ahead of a crucial few weeks for Liverpool's scouting department, Simon Hughes joins us to tell us how it all works. Chris Waff is on the Newcastle beat for us and will tell us how Newcastle may have finally found a way to get the most out of Joel Linton and also to discuss the continued uncertainty surrounding the ownership of Mike Ashley. To read all the articles we discuss on today's pod in full, just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to subscribe for just a pound a month for 12 months and you can cancel at any time. So you can access all of The Athletic all year long and it means you'll get all our podcasts ad-free. The offer runs until the 4th of December and it's for new subscribers only. So go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman and you'll get The Athletic for 12 months for £1 a month. David's YouTube show, Ask Ornstein, continues this week. Subscribers can submit questions in the comments section of David's weekly column on The Athletic. And I'll be back on this podcast feed on Thursday alongside Matt Slater with our new podcast, The Business of Sport. Right then, David, let's start the pod with Arsenal. There we go. Who would have thought Uh, it? Who would have thought it? You spoke to one of their invincibles for The Athletic. Yeah, Freddie Lundberg. It was an absolute pleasure. Of course... He came back to Arsenal in 2018 to work with the under-23s, having been away uh, working at Wolfsburg as assistant manager there. Prior to that, he'd been working with the even younger Arsenal players, I think the under-15s. And it was all kind of Arsene Wenger's plan to keep Freddie Lundberg, you know, progressing in his coaching career and with that Arsenal connection. Very quickly, he was promoted to the first team set-up under Unai Emery in a swap with Steve Bold, and he was seen as a conduit to help the young players like Bakayo Saka making their way into the first team and also work with the experienced players because he's got vast experience and pedigree and respect from his achievements himself. He then took interim charge, as we know, this time last year when Emery was sacked. Results didn't really pick up, but he certainly brought smiles back onto faces, bit of a connection, a really good result away to West Ham. He thought he was building something, but he also says to me in the interview that we did that he kind of knew that he was only ever temporary. He was denied an assistant. Uh, which showed him that it was he was only holding fort for the the permanent successor, despite that successor being uh, somebody his junior and with not much more experience in Mikel Arteta. He then worked under Mikel Arteta in a in a quite a curious role on match days. We would see him going and sitting in the back of the stand, and he explains precisely what that role was in the interview that we did he then left the club in in August to pursue his own management career and that's yet to launch he's carefully considering where that's going to be with which team which project which ownership he's really diligent process that he's going through to make that decision but one of the key things I wanted to speak to him about having been in the Arsenal uh, set up over the last couple of years seen it intimately at close quarters on the training pitch the match pitch in the dressing room is what's wrong, what they're lacking. And that's especially pertinent after what we saw on Sunday evening and some of their recent results. And he pinpoints one area, actually. So I think we can listen to some of that now. Winning is everything. There's nothing else than winning. I don't. I see it in some of the players that they have this winning edge and stuff. But I think if you look in the future for players, and there should be players that have won things and have that hunger because it's, it's a big difference. Uh, you can. I've seen it, or you've probably seen it in players that win and players that don't always win, and that's just a big mentality. But then, what Arsenal should or shouldn't do, like that's totally up to them. That sits in those power positions today uh, to do that, and 
I just uh, want it to go well and for them to um, to get back to, to winning things. That's uh, how I see it. So it's a winning culture that needs to be through recruitment and around the club and in the individuals. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's just how it is. And I'm just, like I'm saying, like, it's not a... Winning is not uh, so easy, um, but it's uh, for me. It's it's a lot of mentality, and I don't mean that the, the players don't want to win. It's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying that you can, yeah, look at individuals and stuff that uh, have that. And um, it's uh, some we say yeah, they didn't behave so well when they lost the game in a, in a training session, for example, when we played. But but yeah, then on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing else than winning and um, it, it has different ways of doing it and like I said I see it in, in some of the players as well so it's not like it's not there but I would say that would be something that I would focus on a lot and you would have seen that through all of your players when you were playing and, and or almost all of them and, and that's what needs to happen now but do they have the footballing quality there at the moment or does that also need to improve of course, they have very, very good football players. Don't get me wrong. Like you look at an Oban Young, like he's a top, top, top player. You have some very, very good, good players there. I think, for example, Tierney, I think is going to be great for the club. Like he has definitely that winning edge. <laughs> you can see you saw that against uh, Leeds after the game. I couldn't say too much on TV, but um, and like Ben Leno, like the saves he uh, he does, saves them often. Like they have some top, top players. Uh, and then you have like the young ones coming through that in my opinion are amazing talents so you have something there like you can totally build on it and do well so uh, just give them time and hopefully it comes so that's pretty timely given what happened yesterday what, what's going to happen with Arsenal both in this January's transfer market and in the summer and how much of it is going to be dependent on Champions League football oh it's a huge unknown at the moment. You know, we did a big piece on, on The Athletic recently about the ownership, the Cronkies. We explained how they have invested with their own money for the first time, really, since they became involved in, in Arsenal in 2007. And that was with the signing of Thomas Party, uh, where Stan Kroenke invested. They paid the €50 million Euros release clause. And I don't think they would be averse to investing again in the future if the right opportunity is there. Certainly, I think they're quite keen to look at release clauses. A lot has been spoken about Dominic Subojlai, I think I've pronounced that correctly, of Salzburg. But Arsenal won't be the only team in the mix for him. There is admiration there. But as is explained in a piece on The Athletic by Tom Warville, there are some reservations too. He's very young and raw and they need to be absolutely convinced. Although that release clause, from what I seem to recall 25 million euros seems incredibly low for a player of his talent and, and future potential. I've spoken before how their sort of longer term plans, which are kind of geared around the summer of 2021, are on that creative player, a kind of number 10. We know that Mesut Ozil will be at the end of his contract and so heading out to the Emirates Stadium and they have really lacked creativity. And then also a right-sided central defender because David Luiz uh, might be coming to an end. Certain other players like Socrates, Mustafi could leave as well. Looking at recent performances, you may say that Arsenal need more work than that and they may look to escalate some of that to January if the right opportunities are there. It's a really difficult time at Arsenal, but you know they're going to have to stick together. We've seen what talent they do have. They won the FA Cup. They claimed some big victories. 
Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's going through his first real dip since he joined Arsenal and they don't have many other routes to goal scoring and so they're going to have to hope that he plays himself back into form, that they can find some supply to him, that they get Thomas Partey back sooner rather than later from injury because central midfield looks weak and that they continue to sort of stay solid at the back because until recently they had the, the Premier League's best record defensively. It's a really difficult time. They've got Tottenham away in their next league match and so yeah, a lot of scrutiny. There will of course be some pressure building on Mikel Arteta externally but internally I think he has total backing and um, Arsenal will want to give it time they won't want to become a club that chops and changes managers you know on the whole I really like what I've seen from Mikel Arteta but there are going to be some bumps in the road he's a rookie manager and um, yeah Arsenal as a club and as a team have a lot of questions to answer at the moment okay that's Arsenal done with Newcastle to come in a bit but next Liverpool The first time I interviewed Neymar, he was 14. He was pretty much famous approaching household name status before he'd even played for the Santos first team. Barca should have been better prepared. They really did not have a contingency plan for if Neymar were to leave. You have the French president, Emmanuel Macron, calling it really good news on the day. Without selling Coutinho for that amount of money, Liverpool's recent history would be very, very different. But then again, Neymar changed the whole dynamic. I'm Adam Leventhal and this is Beyond the Headline, Neymar, the transfer that changed the world. Over the next three episodes, we will explore Neymar's 222 million euro move from Barcelona to Paris Saint-Germain, a transfer that changed the game not only because it more than doubled the world transfer record, but explain how the ripple effects made it arguably the most significant transfer in the history of the game. That's Beyond the Headline, available wherever you get your podcasts or get it ad-free via the Athletic app. Now, with injuries in the transfer window set to open, these are going to be crucial weeks for Liverpool and their scouting department. The Athletic's Simon Hughes has written a huge piece on how the whole operation works. Joins us now. Great piece, Simon. It is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. But, but, let's deal with the big story. Uh, Marine, where you were a ball boy as a kid, into the third round of the FA Cup. We're recording this before the draw, but that, like, genuinely, that is massive. Unbelievable. I mean, at the start of the season, it was it was a lot of a lot of frustration about the club because I still go there, you know, when yeah. I can, when work permits, and obviously with the pandemic stopping last season when they were doing well, and I don't think that the FA Cup was necessarily a priority at the start of the season. Twenty seven years ago, I think that they they, were, they reached the third round and got Crew Alexandra, and then if they had the beaten Crew. These are played Blackburn Rovers when Kenny Dalglish was manager. Right. And the, sto- the story at that time was, was Marines manager Oli Howard was Kenny Dalglish's window cleaner. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but but, but uh, Marine lost at Gresty Road three one. So that 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 tie never it never came about. But if they're in need of a ball boy or ball man, could <laughs> no. they uh, call? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I said I said after they got to the first round, I'll only do it if I get to hold the captain's hand as I go out. <laughs> uh, let's move it back to Liverpool, shall we? Before we delve into your article as well uh, what did you make of Jurgen Klopp's post-match interview on Saturday it was a competitive discussion I sort of enjoyed watching a little bit but I didn't sort of buy into the whole thing on Twitter that it was one you know great sort of TV that we want because I'd rather just see a great game of football to be honest But, but I mean I think it was obviously provoked by a particularly 
unfair comment from Jurgen Klopp, which provoked the discussion. Do you mean the James Milner hamstring? Yes. Congratulations. Yes. 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 I mean, he can be like that sometimes. He's... It's not the first time he's been like that since he's been Liverpool manager. I think that's what you get with Jurgen Klopp. You get sort of the joy of football and, and when, when Liverpool play very well and you can see how, how much he loves it. But I think when somebody loves football so much, when they're pretty down about it, you get that side of it as well. He's not able to hide it. I've seen this in him before. It's, it's not a new thing with the media. He can be quite antagonistic from time to time. And when we've interviewed him, you know, behind the scenes, he does enjoy a competitive debate and he will go backwards and forwards. And the one thing that I will say is he does try to listen. He's a very emotional person. He's not able to hide how he feels when he feels particularly strong about something. So, I mean, I don't agree with everything that he says, but I agree with some of the things that he says. And I just think because you don't agree with some of the things, it doesn't mean you should discount everything that he says. No. I mean, he, he's, he's been talking about this. For, this, has, this isn't a new issue. This has been going on for the last five years since he arrived in England. And it, I think part of it boils down to the fact that even though they won the league last season, Liverpool, and they navigated the way superbly through that winter period, he hates this period of the season when there's just so many games because it goes back to the fact that, he, you know, in Germany they have a two-week winter break and he, he does find it quite hard and, and perhaps a bit emotionally draining as well. So I do see his points on, on the bigger issues, but just as much as he's sort of campaigning on behalf of Liverpool, really, I know, I know he's saying that he's... He's making the points about, you know, for the greater good of football. But ultimately, it's through the prism of Liverpool, isn't it? And I think that when it, it's, mm. it's particularly a Liverpool manager, I think the argument becomes a bit harder, really, because obviously Liverpool are the team that everybody wants to beat. And I, I don't think neutral fans really want Liverpool to win the league this season. So his argument isn't being heard quite as much at the moment. I mean, my personal feeling is that, that Des Kelly, who did the interview for BT, is is the best post-match interviewer that that there is I think he 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 because of his journalistic background I think he's really well prepared and he knows where the arguments are going to come as he would have done obviously with that Jurgen Klopp I found myself watching it and thinking it is possible to to both agree and disagree with each of them mm-hmm. <laughs> over the over <laughs> over the course of that eight minute conversation actually yeah I mean I suppose you ask the points uh, you ask yourself the points what are the, what is the whole point of a post-match interview oh, God, so, don't so get many me dark. God, don't so get many interviews just go through the motions don't they and yeah. at least at least it did it did present I think from from the manager's point of view obviously she became very clear about how he feels and equally from the for the television company's point of view you can understand that point of view I just think two I think it was two seasons ago around this time Jürgen spoke a lot about the Africa Cup of Nations being held in the summer and the impact that that would have you know about players just not getting a rest I remember him speaking about Sadio Mane being a special case in football he's just He's almost, you know, he he's almost indestructible, isn't he? I know he gave him a rest at the at the game against um against Brighton, but he he's been talking about this for a long time, and this frustration's been building up inside him, and it, I think he feels that nobody's listening. So, I think from his point of view, even though he's he's obviously going to take some stick and you know some of it fair off the back of this, at least it's provoking the discussion, and at least now we've seen articles um in in I think there's one in the Times today about how. You know the Premier League and and the, the broadcasters aren't particularly impressed with Jurgen Klopp, but at least that might bring the two of them to the same table together so they can actually talk about it because that hasn't really happened as much as Jurgen I think would like. That was Des Kelly's point, wasn't it? Yeah. Don't fire your anger at at me or at us. Fire <laughs> it. Fire it at the Premier League to yeah. get round the table with the broadcasters and, and work it out. Let's be, let's move on to your article because it is. It is absolutely fantastic insight mm-hmm. into the scouting system that has been devised at Liverpool, overseen 
by sporting director Michael Edwards, who who actually comes across as quite hands off in the piece. He's got a, a huge responsibility at Liverpool. He's you know he's got the keys of the club really. Um, I mean even the whole idea is that that this system would work regardless of who the manager is. I think that's what Liverpool wants. It's quite clear that Jurgen Klopp, w- without him, I don't think it would have worked. I think they need that that sort of. They needed that front man, that that sort of that the person who who's got the experience to drive the football team for. But behind the scenes, there's obviously an extensive network of scouting, which which I think at this point in time is is much stronger than it was five years ago. Not just because of the success of the football team, but just because of the elements of time that over the, a period, a long period of time, the club's been able to build up this database that they have and have a greater understanding of which players suit what they need. So as I've sort of alluded to in the piece, it's, it's not just Michael Edwards, it's, it's Jurgen Klopp, it's the owners, the chief scout and, and the head of strategy, uh, Barry Hunter and Dave Fallows, they're hugely influential figures within it. At the moment, you know, the system works perfectly because I think everybody's fighting towards the same end. I think it didn't work under the previous manager when it seemed like he'd sort of lost his his way in terms of how he wanted the team to play and what sort of players he was looking for at the moment because of Jurgen Klopp's demands are so clear in terms of what he expects out of a fullback or a midfielder it becomes a lot easier for the scouts to do their job and look for what he needs in the team because Jurgen Klopp's team and and sort of it's the shape the the build-up of the team it hasn't really changed a great deal over the last sort of five years it's always been a 4-3-3 and I think when when you've got that level of consistency in the team selection it becomes a lot easier to to look for for what you want the thing is about the piece I mean I I just think it comes across quite clear that Liverpool get the basics right yeah (laughs) you know it's not a few people as ever sort of on social media sort of saying oh well there's nothing you know sort of that that sort of revolutionary there but I think it's because of the consistency that they have at the top end of the club and and getting the basic decisions right the stuff that you should be doing and doing that to a very good standard it means that, that Liverpool are possibly just a bit ahead of other clubs at the moment I think Leicester obviously very good with their recruitment as well which ironically you know it's quite ironic given we mentioned Brendan Rodgers but yeah. behind the scenes they've been very good over a number of years knowing to, when to buy when to sell and reinvest that money so I'd say those two clubs at the moment are probably a little bit ahead of, of the others in terms of the recruitment strategy One of the key words you mentioned there was time and you see a lot of clubs chopping and changing around their recruitment around their sporting director type role let's not forget that it's not so long ago that Liverpool's so-called transfer committee was the laughing stock. It was derided within football and now it's seen as the gold standard, the, the the sort of the model that everybody aspires to. Also, a point you mentioned within the piece is that Michael Edwards needed to be happy with the appointment of Jurgen Klopp, which is mind-blowing to think when you when you imagine the the quality and stature of Jurgen Klopp as a manager and this sort of intelligent guy coming up through the likes of Portsmouth, Tottenham and then Liverpool <laughs> needing to be satisfied with the appointment of Klopp. But they've actually done it the right way. They've got the structure in place first. The head coach fits into that. And over time, it's got to the point it's at now. You can't just produce this or reproduce it at another club overnight. No, it does take a lot of time. And I, I was as critical of, as anyone, you know, four, five, six years ago when... It didn't seem like it was working, but I, I, this isn't revisionism. I still think that the criticism was deserved at that time. There was, 
elements of the club that, that weren't clicking, which meant the, the signings they were making didn't look good and the results on the pitch were affected by that. At this time, they were doing some elements. I think there was some elements of the strategy at that point that were, were right, but obviously wasn't working because the results on the pitch weren't there. Now, at the time when Jürgen Klopp came in, there were some question marks about him because... I think he was seen from afar as being this, you know, this big sort of, I suppose, what we've seen in the last couple of days in front of the TV cameras, quite bombastic. And and can he, is, is he sort of somebody who's who's prepared to sort of delegate and let people get on with the jobs? And, or does he want to take over the whole club? And I think that was a, a misconception because as soon as they met him, they realised that, you know, he, he wants, he, he doesn't want to be, his fingerprints are across everything that happens at Liverpool. But day to day, week to week, Everyone who, who sort of works at Liverpool is allowed to get on with their jobs. And it goes back to what you were saying about Michael Edwards. I mean, part of the piece is about sort of his relationship with the scouts. And he's not in touch with them on a day-to-day basis. They, they are just trusted to go and do what they're expected to do. And, you know, he'll only be in touch with them if he's got a query. He won't be phoning them up, asking them where they are, who they're going to speak to. All he wants to see is 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 the date, or oh, sorry, the, the the scouting reports, which is still delivered in a very sort of traditional way, albeit online into a system. And then what happens from that point onwards is the data analyst team, which is another piece that that should be written really about how they they look at the data and marry that with what the the scouts are saying and what they're seeing and all the feedback coming back from those reports. So there's a good mix at the moment between uh, uh, the, the traditional form of scouting and the the data-led stuff, which is allowing them to to make more rounded decisions. Uh, I think I think maybe five or six years ago there was an impression, rightly or wrongly, that it was being led too much by the data. I think now they, they've they've that they would at the club. I think that they would argue that wasn't the case at the time. But I think now it's without doubt that you've got the the good mix of people who aren't necessarily data-led, but but are more impressionist-led. And, and and the data specialist who understands how to use how to use maths and figures and presumably scout first analytics second i the analyst or do the analysts sometimes go wow this data on this player looks amazing yeah. do you want to go and have a look at it yeah it it that it does sometimes happen that way right okay if the data looks particularly spectacular the the, the scouts will be encouraged to go and look at, at that player but likewise a, a scout might come back with a report on a player who, I don't know, has made, made his debut in one of the European leagues and they don't know so much about it. And from that point onwards, if the report is a good one, the data will then kick in and they'll do as much data research as they can. So it's a mix, really. I, th- I think they've I think they've definitely got the balance right at the moment because I think if, if you go too far with one, I, I, we've seen it at other clubs. I, th- I think that the, the, there are other clubs who've gone full data. I mean, there's, there's Bolton Wanderers, maybe a bad comparison because they're in the in League Two, but they, 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 I know they've gone big into the data over the last couple of years, and it hasn't quite worked for them. The other thing that I notice, and uh, honestly, you you cheeky so and so, I don't know why you had to bring Manchester United into your article, <laughs> but anyhow, hey, um, yeah, but there but there just is an issue. Yeah, I know, yeah, I, know, I felt like it was just personally winding me up. No, um, no I. No, um, uh, but there is an interesting comparison that you make there, which is United have posted scouts, certainly up until last year, as you say, in so many different countries across the globe that takes them to, to over 80 scouts. Liverpool do it slightly differently with what you say, 12 to 15, but they're responsible for two or three countries or sub-regions and then areas in England as well to, to presumably give them a bit of variety. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. The, the feeling at Liverpool is is that by having a scout say in every significant football country, the job becomes too much of a routine. You know, sometimes when you're across everything, you're across less in in some yeah. ways because the job becomes routine. You, you you don't challenge your opinion quite as much as you would if you're sort of ducking and 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 ducking in and out of a of a certain country or a league. From the top, there's a view that at Liverpool it, it keeps the minds a lot sharp and a lot fresher. And I was speaking to a a scout who, who work, who's worked for another Premier League club and he said that sort of the dream, the sort of the, the ideal of the job is that you want to go into a stadium on any given weekend and believe that you might see something that somebody else hasn't seen before or, you know, you, you've got to be excited when you go inside the stadium and there's an impression perhaps that at other clubs, maybe Manchester United, <laughs> that, that <laughs> if, if, if they're seeing the same players and the same team, the same teams every single weekend, it, it's, you know, that, that sort of level of excitement, it, it's not there. So I, I think there's different ways of looking at it. I'm sure that, you know, if, if um, that's not necessarily the sole reason for United's recruitment strategy, not quite kicking no, in and, no. at, at the moment. But, you know, under there might be other tweaks to the system that United could make that, that, that would make it more successful. Well, Liverpool, could a scout, I mean, maybe I'm taking this to a slight extreme, but could a scout be responsible for Norfolk, Suffolk and Uruguay? Yeah, the north. There can be the north of England and then part of the Balkans areas. You know, right, okay, right. It, it it just depends what the priority is as well in terms of what is on that week. So there are some scouts that I'm aware, you know, don't don't cover their regions as regularly as 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 they they basically got a primary job and then a secondary job. So the primary job will be where Liverpool expect to find more players. The secondary job might be. Might be less yeah. than that. So, so um, I mean, you mentioned Uruguay there in in South America at the moment. Liverpool have increased the, the scouting operation in that region because I think I think this is sort of reflective of, of how things are. I think at one point a couple of years ago, the two Manchester clubs had twenty seven scouts between them operating full time in South America. Liverpool have just gradually moved that up to four full time scouts. But it's not just about sort of signing players from South America. It's about having a data backlog of reports. So Roberto Firmino is an example of it. He was a player who was scouted by Liverpool's South American scout, Fernando Troiani, uh, going back seven, eight, nine years ago when he was, pretty much when he was on trial at Sao Paulo. So it meant that when he was doing well for Hoffenheim, all years later, they were able to look back at those scout reports and, and form a bigger impression of, of the person, you know, who his family are. It's not just about the performance. A lot of it is down to, you know, who they're surrounded by and the personality. Because Liverpool don't sign players that don't fit into the sort of the, the, the ethos that the club want, Klopp wants in the dressing room as well. So that really does help. If the need is there for the coming transfer window what sort of process will be gone through and has the work on the recruitment side already been done by this point so close to a transfer window not everything works out the way the scouting department expected to they obviously sort of have a long-term strategy they're always working two or three windows ahead but you can't legislate for the number of injuries that Liverpool have had this season it's just been incredible hasn't it you know, they're obviously missing six, seven, eight players at the moment, and that might cause them to to to, to, to change routes. But what is certain is they won't just sign a player who, for the sake of filling a position, they'll want, that, and they won't want to sign a player who might jeopardise the chances of getting an even better player in the long term. So, I think we've obviously discussed it before about the player at Leipzig, Upa Meccano, they, they, they do really like if they can, you know, if they can get him in January, uh, in 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 the summer. 
it will be interesting to see whether that will affect exactly what they do in January. The list of targets is never never defined. It, it can change within the context of a couple of months according to what the player's done or according to what's going on at Liverpool as well. But by this point, would it be in the hands of Michael Edwards, Jurgen Klopp, Mike Gordon, as opposed to the deeper recruitment uh, network yeah. as for January? Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's right at the top. I mean, yeah, uh, no, no, no decision is ever made without if Jurgen Klopp's uncomfortable with the decision, they, they will never sign a player. He'll never have a player forced upon him. I don't want to say it's an unprecedented moment, but it's it's obviously an extreme version of what can happen when you've got lots of injuries and you've got massive pressure on the squad. I think it might prompt Liverpool to do something that, that potentially they, they wouldn't have done two or three months ago just because, you know, that they are running out of players at the moment. Jurgen Klopp, obviously, he uses exaggeration to make his point sometimes mm. and sometimes you've got to take it with a pinch of salt. But if he is genuinely concerned about... Liverpool's squad being able to finish the season to a competitive standard because of the number of injuries that they've got at the moment, which you would think would will only increase throughout this period through December when they, and January when they've got so many games. You know that's going to put pressure on the on the the the, the transfer budget and the, the 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 transfer activity. But I I do, I do think that Liverpool won't waver too far from the long term strategy. I, th- I think they'll be trying to push if they are going to go and try and sign players. They'll be trying to sign players that they have always wanted not just players that will fill a space for the next next couple of months that's brilliant Simon thank you Simon thank you mate no problem let's move on to Newcastle on the pod now we're joined by the Athletics Chris Waff who covers the Newcastle beat I mean it's well 72 hours probably at least uh, since Newcastle's big win on Friday night when we're recording this so you must still be basking in the glory of uh, of that performance, Chris. Well, it was a million times better than it's been recently, but that probably says a lot more about how Newcastle have played in, in recent weeks. Um, because for 85 minutes, the game itself was was pretty dire. I mean, Newcastle were better, and I think that was more just, just the game and the spectacle in general. That tends to be, when you watch Newcastle this season, most games have been pretty non... They haven't been any entertainment value whatsoever for both teams but I thought that as an all-round performance in terms of certainly defensively they were a lot better they looked better in attack and then the fact that they got the 2-0 win the result so often dictates how people feel if it finished nils each of they'd lost 1-0 in the end then I think there would have been a lot of frustration on Tyneside but at least they got to celebrate over the weekend it was a 2-0 win it puts them sort of comfortably mid-table again and, and, and the pressure eases a little bit still pragmatic though wasn't it it wasn't exactly gung-ho I, I spoke to Steve Bruce on Saturday Day. I did say, mm. you know, sometimes do you just think, sod it, let's go, let's go for it. And he said, you just can't, you just can't do that because much as you might want to, you're going to get picked off. I mean, I do doubt whether Crystal Palace would have picked them off, but you can see his point. A lot of Newcastle fans might not, but you can see his point. Part of the frustration earlier on in the season was that Newcastle weren't being gung-ho by any stretch but also they were sitting off so much and yet being picked off anyway so they were being defensive and conceding goals and, ch- and opportunities yeah. anyway so so the fact that they were they were basically being so passive and ceding the territory was 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 irrelevant in terms of that they were still conceding opportunities they just weren't creating any themselves so Saturday, what it was really good about Friday night was at least they were, they were getting higher up the pitch they were getting bodies higher up the pitch and, that, and they had support up front whereas it's been players have been really isolated in recent weeks 
attack. And yes, it, it wasn't the finished article by any stretch, and it's just it's just one game. We'll see over the course of the next few weeks when they've got some really important matches coming up, whether they can actually start to, to score goals more regularly. But it was it was certainly more encouraging than we've seen in recent weeks. Well, talking of goals, it looks like finally Newcastle have once again got a promising strike partnership in the in the making. And and you mentioned those games coming up. Goodness me, they they could really rack some points together if if they continue to build those those partnerships and and continue that sort of positive trajectory. Yeah, well, the encouraging thing about Friday night, and I, and I wrote about this on the Athletic, was that we saw one of Joe Linton's best all-round performances for Newcastle yeah. and that was only it was only one 90-minute game and it will be highlighted that he had the majority of their shots and most of them were awful and that is the <laughs> real the real issue with him that the, the goal scoring and shooting still remains a problem and it is that his goal actually came via a, a tame shot and then, and then a deflection I, mean, he, I the was just going to say I don't <laughs> I don't want to be miserable here but even even his goal was a pretty awful shot yeah, it was, and and, <laughs> well, and this is this is what we've seen so much from him. And, and last season, the when he did play up front for for a large part of the season, and to be fair on Steve Bruce, he didn't have that many options because Dwight Gale was injured for most of the season. Obviously, they didn't sign Salomon Rond on the summer before, and so he, Joe Linton was made to to play as this centre forward, which he just he never was before. He's never a lone centre forward previously, and he, he's coming to a new country in a team which doesn't create many opportunities. He was so isolated and you really did feel for him for a large part of last season but also from a Newcastle point of view it just was not working and he was taken out the team for a little bit he was played as a left winger at parts and Steve Bruce himself even suggested that that he could be a left winger going forward and it just never really seemed that that was the place to fit him he's now playing as a second striker or, or number 10 and he, he's played there a few times all are spread out but each time he has done he's looked far better and, and having someone alongside him like Callum Wilson who takes the goal scoring burden off him I think that really has helped his all-round game there are two subjects aren't there really that I imagine you discuss all the time on pod on the time which is one where a Newcastle's goal is going to come from Tick, we've done that. Secondly, <laughs> what's happening with Mike Ashley? So tick, we'll do that. Well, yeah, I mean, a goals as, as you alluded to was is Callum Wilson. In terms of Mike Ashley, that is 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 the unanswerable question at the minute, and he can't even tell anyone that. Not not that he speaks ever or is clear in, in his intentions, but at the moment we've had the the takeover attempt from uh, the Saudi led group, and that didn't happen during the summer July that they pulled out having not got beyond the owners and directors test since then we've had various different things going on in the background we've had political movements there's been uh, a fans group themselves have actually tried to push the Premier League uh, for answers and for clarity and I try to take them to the competition commission then you also have Mike Ashley and Newcastle United themselves who took the extraordinary step the other week of uh, for the second time in the matter of a few weeks calling out the Premier League of whom they are one of 20 members and basically saying how they have taken the Premier League to arbitration so we don't know exactly what the arbitration is trying to achieve whether it is ownership or uh, ownership change or whether it is compensation or exactly what it is but all the parties remain interested Mike Ashley still wants to sell up for about 305 million pounds and so the whole club remains in this sort of limbo stasis where nobody knows exactly what's going to happen in the in the short to medium term never mind the long term and so Mike Ashley still hangs over the club. There were reports over the weekend of a potential Covid outbreak as we record now uh, a lot of people at Newcastle are waiting for test results back before they know if they can resume training today players, staff. Is, is that a serious concern 
concern that could derail things for Steve Bruce? It is a serious concern. I mean, Newcastle, until basically the, the, the most recent national break, had been pretty good at not having too wide a spread of COVID. They were one of the earliest clubs to introduce the washing of hands at training grounds long before others did. I think it was early February. And ver- they've had protocols in place throughout the whole pandemic. But then since the international break, they've had uh, a few cases around the first team group. I think it's up to five confirmed cases now. And so, yeah, they cancelled training over the weekend. Players had to arrive at the training ground uh, in their cars and they had swabs for, for extra tests to see whether this they've contained this break or whether it is a wider spread within the group. So preparations for Friday night at Aston Villa have already been uh, disrupted. But I mean, if it does turn out to be a significant uh, outbreak, then certainly Steve Bruce may end up selecting a makeshift team or beyond that, if it does really turn out to be prevalent, then I suppose that the game itself could come into doubt at a later stage this week. Cool. Never a dull moment at St James's Park. <laughs> <laughs> Just a final one on the limbo that you you spoke about. If if there is limbo regards the ownership, what Newcastle fans will will fear is that that means complete inactivity in January. Yeah, and that that remains the concern of Steve Bruce. That I know privately is, is trying to push for assurances that that he can strengthen because he did want a centre back in the summer, as 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 David himself reported that they tried to to get Rob Holding on loan from Arsenal. That was pretty much agreed until Arsenal pulled the plug. He still wants a centre back. He would like a centre midfielder. They really lack dynamism in the middle of the park, and, and so I, the, the fact that they've still got two domestic loans, I think, is important because I think regardless of what happens with with the ownership, they, they will push to use them, and even if Mike Ashley doesn't release funds because in the summer the summer transfer budget was significantly reduced 30 to 40 million down because of the of the pandemic i think that they will look to bring in at least one or two bodies on loan but permanent signings may have to wait a little bit longer we will let you go to uh, continue to bask in the glow of, uh, of victory <laughs> thank Until you very villa park <laughs> oh you always have to bring it down don't you no, sorry about luck. him sorry about him chris <laughs> That's all right, we're used to that sort of thing. Uh. <laughs> Don't forget, by the way, Alan Shearer, now a columnist on The Athletic. Uh, you can read his interview there right now with Frank Lampard as they talk about Roman Abramovich's support, rebuilding Chelsea and dropping stars. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Now, don't forget, David's YouTube video drops on Wednesday. I'm back Thursday alongside Matt Slater for the Business of Sport podcast. And David and I will be back with this pod next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Have a good week.